Uh, well, we um, have a, a, a special guest with us this morning who's going to be sharing the word uh, with us. Um, uh, I'm going to introduce him now, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to have him come up. But uh, Jack Blakenship is the director of the Baptist Collegiate Ministries at Winthrop University. Uh, you've heard me mention him before and, and pray for him. Uh, we've done several things to partner with them uh, this past year. Uh, God has really blessed Winthrop Campus by bringing him and his wife, Carrie, uh, to that university. He's got a huge heart for evangelism. And the things that you'll hear uh, if you talk to him uh, about how much the opportunity he has to share Jesus with people who are lost, uh, people who are from all over the world who come to, to school and get a chance to hear about Jesus. And I'm excited and privileged uh, to be able to hear uh, him expound God's word uh, for us today. Uh, so with that introduction, I'm going to pray uh, for our time and just have Jack come on up afterward. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you. We thank you that you are holy that you are righteous and good. Father, as we enter into your presence, into your holy presence, Father, we are aware of our sinfulness. God, even this past week, we have um, not made you a priority. God, we have been filled with anxiety or fear. God, we have been coveting things that you would not have us desire. God, we, we pray that you would just clean us. God, it says in your word that he who confesses his sins, you will be faithful and just. And you will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, we ask that you do that now as we prepare to hear your word. But God, you give us a, a, a focus, a focus on your word, an attention, God, uh, to hear from you. For God, we do not come here today just to hear a man preach. We came to hear a word from God. Lord, we pray that as the word is spoken, that, that our ears are sharpened, that our hearts are softened, that we may hear and receive your word, your holy word that you give to your people. So God, we pray that you'd be kind to us today. But God, not only kind to us, Father, we pray that you are kind to other churches in our city. God, we pray for, for Jay Hardwick at North Rock Hill this morning. God, we pray that as he gets up and preaches, God, that you will anoint him with your spirit. God, that the people will be able to hear and believe your word that people are saved and are converted by the power of God. God, we pray that you continue to use that church to reach the lost in this city. God, we, we pray now for the Baptist Collegiate Ministry at Winthrop. God, we thank you for bringing Jack and Carrie uh, to Rock Hill to serve uh, the students there. God, we, we thank you for the, for the fruit that you're already bearing in their ministry. God, how you are calling people to repentance. God, you are calling them to believe in faith. God, we pray for even a more fruitful ministry. God, we pray as, as the, the students there go deeper in the word of God, that they will have an outward focus. They want to reach and share the gospel with others. God, call more students to be a part of that ministry, that people may believe and go out into all the world making disciples, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you so much for the privilege uh, to be part of the kingdom of God. And God, we thank you that our kingdom expands far bigger than this church. So God, we pray that you give us a glimpse today. Give us a glimpse of what you're doing at Winthrop. God, give us a glimpse in how we can reach into the heavens and pull down the promises um, to uh, your people. So God, I pray that you fill Jack with your, your spirit. God, I pray that you anoint him from on high. God, I pray as he gets, stands up here to preach, that he preaches your word, that he hides behind the cross. Use him to build up your church, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I am very excited to be with you this morning. Thanks so much, Dave. Um, you are, uh, I know you know this already, but you were blessed to have him as your pastor. I've enjoyed getting to know him over the past uh, several months. Look forward to it more in the future. Uh, as he said, I'm Jack Blankenship, uh, campus minister for the Baptist Collegiate Ministry. And um, you probably saw all the little blonde-haired uh, children running around with us. Those are, those are my kids, my wife, Carrie. Uh, we, uh, we homeschool our oldest, um, and his name is Caleb. And Noah and Josiah just went to Children's Church, and our sweet little Eden is in the nursery. So the Lord smiled upon us and gave us a little girl after four boys. And uh, I love my boys and didn't realize, three boys. I said four boys, didn't I? My son, thank you, Caleb. He corrected me. Any other time I mess up during the sermon, I'll just look up and Caleb will correct me. Uh, so that'll be, that'll be good. He's, he's good at helping keeping me straight. Uh, but we do have four children and um, three boys, which are so much fun, and a little girl just sweet as sugar so my wife is superwoman I don't know how she does it but she does because she puts up with all of them and then on top of that she has me to deal with so it's good um I uh I I love collegiate ministry I, I tell people all the time that I don't know how the Lord has smiled upon me the way that he has to let me do what I do every day I get I get to wake up and I get to spend time with college students and I get to see students who know Jesus grow in their faith. I get to see students who don't know Jesus come to know him. And and every time I get the chance to, to speak at one of our churches, I usually just want to start with a genuine heartfelt thank you. Um, without churches like Park Baptist, we could not do what we do. It just wouldn't happen. I have friends who do collegiate ministry uh, and for different denominations and in different groups, and they have to spend at least half the year raising their support. But because of churches like you and other South Carolina Baptist churches who give to the cooperative program, my time and my effort and my energy is focused solely on reaching college students for Jesus. I don't have to spend half my year going and asking people if they will give so that I can support my family. So from a personal note, I say thank you very much. But then also our local budget is made up solely by contributions from local churches, churches like Park who give uh, regularly that allow us to do the things that we do. So I want to say thank you. From the, from the depths of my heart, thank you for being uh, faithful to the cooperative program. Thank you for being faithful to supporting us. And, and I want to share with you uh, briefly, before we get into the Word, this will not be a sermon about collegiate ministry, but I think I would be amiss if I didn't share with you why it is that my heart just beats for college students. And there's a couple of things that I'd like to share with you um, for the reasons why this is so important to me. Right now, there are more undergraduates, that is people earning a bachelor's degree, there are more undergraduates now than there ever have been at any point in history. Even with the economic downturn, the number of undergraduates is greater than it ever has been. And numbers show that 70%, a recent study showed that 70% of students who are involved in a church youth group in America... 70% of students who are involved in a church youth group, upon graduation from high school, walk away from the church. That's, that's huge. If you think about the number of the amount of time that our church has put into youth ministries and to trying to reach those high, middle school and high school students, 70% are now walking away from the church. 
That's why I love doing what I get to do, because I get to walk up beside those students who are at a transition point, who are about to decide whether they're going to walk away from the church and say, no, don't walk away. Keep going where you're going. Seeing them, help them grow with Jesus. And I pray that the Lord would increase our ministry so that those who were tempted to turn and walk away will stay steadfast walking towards Jesus. Another reason why I'm passionate about what I do is another recent survey was just done. And that in this generation of 18 to 25-year-olds, a conservative estimate is that about only 15% of them have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. So that means right now, according to Tom and Sam Rainier in their book, The Millennials, in this millennial generation, only 85% don't have a relationship with Christ. Only 15% do. And later I'm going to share with you what that looks like in our area. Um, One of the other things that's great about it is that students from all over the world, all over the world, come to America to college to study. So just this past year, I've had the awesome opportunity to share the gospel numerous times with as many as 14 to 20 people from Saudi Arabia. We can't send missionaries to Saudi Arabia. I got to share the gospel with them multiple times. And our students walked beside me, and we got to share the gospel with them multiple times. Just this year... A ministry to Chinese students right here in Rock Hill has seen almost 20 students come to know Christ, students directly from China. And so they're here, they're learning, and they're seeing what it is they're going to do to earn a college degree and go back home and and do a job. But what we understand is that God hasn't just brought them here so they get a degree. God's brought them here to introduce Himself to them. And now when they're going back... They're not just going back with a degree. They're going back followers of Jesus. And they're not just businessmen and businesswomen and leaders and people in society. They are now people who want to reach others for Christ as well. And we get to have an impact, a part of that. And probably one of the other things that gets me most excited about uh, doing college ministry is college campus is where the exchange of ideas take place. You see, wherever your society's going, it has to kind of have a, a simmering pot somewhere. With that, the, kind of those ideas, the, the thoughts about what society's going, what culture's going to be like. And what you find is where our culture is now is where college campuses were 20 years ago. So now, as you're on college campus, you get an idea as to where culture is going. But I also want to look at that as an opportunity. Instead of just looking at it and saying, okay, now we know how to respond to it. Why aren't we proactive to it? Why can't we see God move and pray that God would raise up students like he did at the turn of the century in the student volunteer movement where hundreds of students from all around the world were gathering and praying and going everywhere to share the gospel. Instead of looking at it as like, oh my goodness, so many things are bad. I look at it and say, what if, what if God interacted in a massive way, on not just Winthrop's campus, not on USC's and Clemson's, but what about across the country if in America God started an awakening and a revival on college campuses? See, for me, that's what, that's what gets me excited. And it's because of partnerships with churches that come together, we, we see things like, hap- like that happening. So what I would ask of you, our greatest need is prayer. 
Our greatest need is prayer. It is easy to get up and preach or easy to get up and talk to a church and say, you know, we just need you to pray for us. It almost kind of becomes a, a token token request. I mean, you're, you're going to kind of express if somebody's going to say, what do you need? Well, pray for us. You know, it's almost like that's just kind of like a given. Like you have to say that so you're spiritual enough to ask for money or, or spiritual enough to ask for something else. Um, but that's not the case. I'm asking you if you would pray for us. Because as I will talk about in a few minutes, we can't do what we want God to do. We can't make that happen. We can, we can do good ministries. We can build buildings. We can do all kinds of things. But if the Spirit of the Lord does not stir the hearts of people, it's all for nothing. It'll flutter and die. But if God moves, if God moves, things will never be the same. You know, as, as I was going through uh, this year, one of the things I've realized is that my, my prayer life is not the way that it should be. I think that's one thing God is just pressing on me over and over and over again. I, I, I wake up early in the mornings because I, I, that's the time, about the only time, that our house is quiet. You can imagine with a seven-year-old boy, a five-year-old boy, a three-year-old boy, and a one-year-old little girl, that about eight o'clock when they all get to bed, my wife and I just kind of crash, her more than me. And there's not a lot of quiet, but I like getting up early, and I, I get up, and I drink coffee, and I love reading my Bible, and I love doing Bible studies, and I love teaching, and I love preaching, and I love talking to people about Jesus, and I love encouraging people. But I think that the Lord's been pressing upon me that where I'm lacking is really in prayer. And what I find is that I can do those things and I'll move forward in those other things ultimately in my own power or with the gifts that he's given me, not really relying on him the way that I should. And I know that because I'm not asking him to do anything. If I'm not asking God to do anything, then what am I telling him? I got this one covered. Thanks for putting me here. You give me everything I need. You go take care of those other people where I got this one taken care of. Now, I wouldn't say that. And none of us would say that. None of us would be so flippant about it. None of us would be so blatant about it. But isn't that what our lack of prayer ultimately communicates? Because it's when we need God that we go to Him. It's when we need God that we ask Him to intervene. And so when I ask you to pray, and we talk about prayer this morning, which is going to be the topic that we're going to look at in the Lord's Word, is prayer is not, shouldn't be our last resort. It should be our first resort. It shouldn't be the only thing we can do. It should be the main thing that we can do. So I'd like if you would, if you would open your Bible to the book of Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. As you're turning there, um, a lot of this sprang out of an uh, opportunity I had a few weeks ago to uh, meet with campus ministry leaders from across the state. A couple hundred students got together, um, and we were doing a leadership intensive. And I was asked to take a teaching time, similar, similar to this, but a, a teaching time to talk about praying for our campuses. Now, keep in mind what I've just told you. 
prayer is something that I'm weak in, and I was asked to teach on prayer. So I thought, oh, okay, thank you, Lord. You kind of teach me something else here. And so I was sitting here praying, and I had thought through multiple passages. I didn't know what I was going to teach on. And so like, like Pastor Dave, I got a bookshelf full of books. I knew I had a couple of them on there about prayer. Uh, several of them that I had about prayer just never read. And so I said, I just need to go over. I just need to see if maybe something over here will spark spark what I need to teach on. And there was a book on my shelf that I had had never read by a man named Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray was a Scottish missionary to South Africa, late 1800s, early 1900s. Prolific writer. This guy wrote many, many books. Uh, Just a great writer. Highly recommend him to you. He has a book. It's probably one of his best-known classics, uh, With Christ in the School of Prayer. And that's actually what I went over to go grab. But when I got over there, another book caught my eye. It's called The Ministry of Intercession. So intercession means praying for other people. I was trying to teach students how they should pray for other people. I thought, hey, there you go. That's a good one. So I pulled it off my shelf. Now, I admit to you, when I've tried to read books on prayer before, I'd try to read the books. I'd get about a chapter or two in, and I would end up just setting it over to the side and picking something else up. I just could not ever get into them. But I grabbed this book, and I could not put it down. I just read it chapter after chapter after chapter every second until I got finished with it. And in the middle of this book, there's this one parable that he, he pointed the reader to that really is the parable we're going to look at this morning. And some of the challenges he brought out were things that I learned that I just want to share with you based on this parable. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start in verse 1. But our main focus of the text will be in verses 5 through 8. I want to start in verse 1 because I want us to see the context in which this parable is given. So that as we see the context, we understand what's going on. And at first, uh, uh, it might seem kind of odd, almost as if it's just stuck in, out of place. But I hope by the end we'll see how very important it is in the strategic way that Jesus put it here. So Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." And he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you that though he will not and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and will give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So so we see the setting here. Jesus is out praying and the disciples have watched Jesus. They notice, we see multiple times in the Gospels that what Jesus does was Jesus will uh, pull himself aside to a solitary place or he'll get up early in the morning or he's going and praying. So the disciples are observing this. And so another point in time, Jesus is there and he's praying and one of his disciples, we don't know which one, it just says one of his disciples comes up to him and says, Lord, teach us to pray. Just like John taught his disciples to pray. And so then Jesus goes to give what we know as the Lord's Prayer. 
Now, it's slightly different here from the Matthew's version from the Sermon on the Mount, but it's basically the same thing. So we know that this is Jesus. He's teaching how to pray here. And then at the very end, Jesus gives this parable. So we have the Lord's Prayer that we're used to, but then Jesus gives this parable, and he says, how many of you have a friend? Okay, that's kind of a good start. How many of you got a friend that another friend comes to your house, and at midnight you have nothing to give need? So you would go to this friend and ask him for food. Now that sounds kind of interesting to us, so let's, let's put it this way. Imagine it like this. Pastor Dave and I, we've become pretty good friends. You know, hopefully be better friends. But let's say, for instance, one night, I'm asleep, and there's just this knock at my door, this pounding. Now, if you knock on my door at midnight, I'm probably just going to call the cops. That just, I, don't, I don't really know why anybody would be beating on my door at midnight, you know? And so if somebody's beating on my door at midnight, I'm going, and I kind of look, and I look through the peephole, and I'm like, what in the world is Dave Keene doing over at my house at midnight on a Tuesday night? And so Dave, I realize that it's him. I think, okay, maybe there's danger. Maybe something's going on. And Dave says, man, I'm so glad you answered. A good buddy of mine just came over. And we were thinking, man, it would be awesome to have some chocolate chip cookies. But I have no eggs and no sugar. And this is my best friend. It's what we always do when we get together is we make chocolate chip cookies. And I don't have eggs and sugar. And i got to have them. Bilo is, for some reason, closed. So I just, can you please give me some eggs and sugar? And I'm not going to lie to you. I like to sleep. Dave comes over to my house, beats on the door because he wants eggs and sugar. Not really going to be a happy guy. You know, but what what does Jesus say? Not because you're the friend, but because this guy was so bold to come over to your house, you're just going to give him some stuff so he'll go away. Now, what in the world does that parable have to teach us about praying for other people? It has to. It has to be about praying. Because Jesus, in the middle of, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. He gives them the Lord's Prayer. Then he gives this parable. And then he goes on to talk about praying. So what in the world does this have to do with praying? Well, Andrew Murray brought out some things, and I think they were... um, sufficient enough that we might share some of them this morning. I want to share with you five things from this parable that help us to think about praying for other people. First thing is this. We, like the friend, must see the need around us. You understand that this guy who goes and knocks on the door, there's a need He doesn't have anything to feed the person who's come to his house. Now, in this society at this day, this isn't, I need eggs and sugar so we can make chocolate chip cookies. This is, if a friend comes and they stay with you, you have to show hospitality and you have to give them whatever. It is your responsibility. And so now, he's got a friend who's come from a long journey. He's tired. He's over at his house. And now this guy has nothing to give him. This is a disgrace. He is not doing what it is he's supposed to do. There is great need here. This person has to have food so much that it would drive him to go knock on somebody's door at midnight to get them out of the bed to get bread. You see, we kind of, I kind of glossed over that in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way. But let us see that there is great need that's going on here. Jesus puts this before a group of people who would understand that this man must give somebody who's there. There is need. 
And I want to tell you, in my situation, in my context, as I look at Winthrop University with 7,000 students, and I look at the study that was done by the, by, uh, the Rainiers and their book, The Millennials, and I understand that 85% of those students don't have a relationship with Christ. When I look over at campus of 7,000 students, I know that 5,950 of those do not know Jesus. 85%. Now, we're in South Carolina. We're in the, the buckle of the Bible Belt. So let's, we could re- maybe lower that number a little bit. But you're probably not going to go any lower than 80. And so that means every day when I walk over there, what I have to do is I have to understand that so many of those students that I see laughing and carrying books and being on the Internet and standing in line at the coffee shop don't know Jesus. But you know what? I read another statistic the other day from North American Mission Board. And they said, the estimates are in America today that about 75%, 60 to 75% of people don't have a relationship with Jesus. So that means it's not just when I walk over on the college campus. This means that when we get in our cars and we drive home or we go to the store or we go out to eat or we go to visit a friend a large number of the people around us don't know Jesus. See, we're in a place, we're in a place in America where it's easy, especially in the South. It's easy because most of us are, are heavily involved in our churches, and that's a good thing. And the closest people around us know Jesus, and that's a good thing. But we can get isolated where we don't see the need around us. We think the need is over there. I'm taking some students to, to Ethiopia in, in June for two weeks. And so we think that the need is there. Well, I've got two students who are going to Southeast Asia for an entire month to an island that has no Christian witness, and we think the need is there. And I've got another student who's going to get on a boat and ride it up a river in the Philippines to visit hard-to-reach villages. And we think that the need is there, and it is. But we're never going to pray until we see the need that is around us. Now, there are needs, and this morning I'm talking specifically and really focusing in on praying for people who don't know Jesus, not to the exclusion of praying for other needs that people have. Those are real. Those are legitimate. We are called to pray for those, but especially this morning as we think about praying for those who don't know Jesus, we first have to be confronted with the need. Secondly, we must like me, we like the friend must love those around us. You see, recognizing the need is not enough. It's merely the first step. Because when we recognize the need, you can see somebody in need, but if you have no love or no compassion for them, you won't do anything about it. This guy didn't wasn't just worried about his shame. He was also worried this is my friend. Somebody I care about. This is not merely a stranger that I've brought in. This is somebody around me that I care about. And we must love others. And our love for others is really motivated, first and foremost, by our love for God. As we love Jesus, as we see what He has done for us on the cross, and we understand that He did that not just for us, but for others as well, we are then, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 14, compelled by the love of Christ to love others. We are pushed, we are persuaded, we are uh, 
controlled by the love of Christ, that we would go out and love others as well. See, this is what Jesus did. And we know that this is not some kind of sappy, sixth-grade love note love. This is a love that's like uh, Romans 5.8, where God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we understand that when we love somebody, we want what's absolutely best for them. We agree with that. When you love somebody, you want what's best for them. So that's why we buy good birthday presents. And that's why anniversaries are important. And that's why we want to do the things that are the best for the people that, love, that we love them. We know, also know that Psalm 63.3 says that you, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. There's absolutely nothing better than we could give to someone than to introduce them to the Savior of the world. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Life that is most precious to us. Life that we will spend hundreds of dollars insuring in case we get a cold. Life that is more important to us, that we will do everything to take care of it. That thing is which is ultimately most valuable to us. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than that. And if that's what's best, we want that for those that we love. Third thing is this, we like the friend must realize that we are powerless. You know, the first two things, when you, when you talk about those first two things, like they really don't have anything to do with prayer necessarily. We can see need and we can love people, but that's not praying. We're only driven to prayer when we recognize this third thing, that we're powerless. So let's think about this as, as far as it comes to evangelism. I see somebody who doesn't know Jesus. I know that if they, were, if they were to know Jesus, if they were to, to be a part of his family, if they were to be redeemed, if they were to be, they would be forgiven, they would be brought in, they would have all the things they're searching for in the world, all the things they're searching for apart from Christ, all those things they would have fulfilled in Christ. And I know that, but I also know that I can't talk them into anything. I can't give them a new heart. I can't earn their way into heaven. I can't get their forgiveness. I can't do that. The greatest thing that they need, I can't provide for them. But I know who can. And I know who has. You see, Christ has already died that people might come to know him. And one of the pictures that Andrew Murray has in his book that just sticks with me, it's so wonderful, is he says that intercession is those of us who are Christ, and we're praying for others, is as if we're reaching into heaven to grab hold of the promises that God has already given in his word, and we're grabbing hold of them for somebody else. And if I know that Christ has died to save people from hell, and I know that if people will call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved, then what I'm doing is I'm reaching into heaven and I'm asking God to do something for them that they can't do for themselves. And I'm, God is calling me to be the link between the two. Now here's the thing. God can do all this without us. God doesn't have to have us. God does not have to have you and I to save people. But get this. God, in his merciful, astounding sovereignty, has said, I will work through the prayers of my people. God has chosen to do that. 
God has chosen that the way he will work is through the prayers of his people. That boggles my mind. That God could do it through angels. God could do it through visions. God could handwrite it in the sky. God could personally appear to everybody. But what God says is he wants to use us to share the message. And the way that we're going to go about doing that is through prayer. It it astounds me. Then to think that I won't be praying for people. If God said that's what he's going to do. And I just recognize I'm powerless, but God is all-powerful. The fourth thing I want you to know is that we, like the friend, must exercise faith. Now, what we've got to remember is when we go back to the parable, the man who was asking for bread went to the friend's house at midnight after everybody was in bed and the door was locked. He went there not thinking I don't know, you know, I don't really know if this guy's going to give me any bread. Why would you go to somebody's house at midnight asking for bread if you didn't think they were going to give it to you? He didn't say, hey, do you have any bread in there? He said, I need bread. I need bread. What he's saying is, I need bread and I know you've got it, so I need to get it from you. So they go in faith. And I think that this is probably one of the things that God's really been testing my heart and pushing my heart in prayer. Because sometimes when I pray, it is as if I come to God not really in faith. Because what I do is I kind of come to God and I kind of say, you know, God, if you want to, if you think it might be a good idea, Lord, if if you might... And it's almost as if I don't come to God really believing that he is going to answer this prayer. It's almost as if it's kind of a coin toss. And that's not how God calls us to come in prayer. Now hear me, I'm not talking about some kind of name it and claim it prosperity gospel where God is like a vending machine and your prayer is just a quarter and you put it in, you get exactly what you want. That's not what I'm talking about. There are people out there who teach that and it's just wrong. But what I will say this is that all too often we are really good at seeing a pendulum that swings one way and swinging it the exact opposite way. And so now instead of a, I'm just going to name it and claim it, you believe it, you get it. Now it's almost going to be like, well, I'm just going to pray and I'm just going to stand back and I don't really know what God's going to do. So I don't even know if he's going to do this or not. So I'm just going to pray and he's, he's sovereign. So I'll just let him take care of it. Well, what Jesus calls us to do is Jesus calls us to pray believing. Remember what the book of James says, James 1, 6 through 7? But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now it is true that we might ask with wrong motives. James goes on with that and talks about that as well. And it is true that God ultimately have a different plan than what we pray for. And as long as we acknowledge that, as long as we go in there humbly, we can ask God believing. And if God sees fit to answer that prayer in another way, He'll open our eyes, He'll show us how beautiful that is. But we must go to God and we must believe that when we're praying, He can and will do something. Otherwise, why are we really even praying for God to save somebody? If somebody doesn't know Jesus, we see the need, we love them, we know that they're powerless 
And we know that God's powerful to do it. If we don't believe He's going to do it, why are we even praying? But if we do know that He's going to do it, and we do know that He is faithful, then we can pray. And what an encouragement it is. What an encouragement to know that our God who is faithful, who has set it up and has said, I want to work through the prayers of my people. He's calling us and he's saying, call on me. Believe me. I want to work for you. Which actually leads me to my fifth point. We, like the friend, must not give up. We must not give up. One thing that Jesus teaches us about prayer is that the answer may not come quickly. Um, the, in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse, verse 8, it says that um, because he, he will not give it to him because he's a friend, yet because of his impudence. Now, most of us don't use the word impudence on a regular basis. I don't think I've ever used it until I started studying this text. I don't even know what it means until I looked it up. Um, but what it means, the Greek word here, means a shameless persistence. You know, so this guy is literally standing outside the door making a scene, and he doesn't care. He's not giving up. And the guy says, go away. I'm in bed. The whole family's in bed. The door is locked. This guy is not giving up. And Jesus says the reason why the man inside gives him bread is not because he's his friend, but because he won't give up and he keeps making this scene out there. He just gives it to him to get him to go away. Now, here's the thing. When I first started studying this parable, I, I was kind of tracking along. I was like, okay. A friend, you're going to a friend. Okay, I'm the person who's asking. God's the one I'm asking for. And I got to the end. I was like, wait a minute now. Hold on one second. So is Jesus telling me that I get on God's nerves when I go to him and ask him for stuff? And that what I've got to do is I've just got to constantly be, be begging him and, and just make a shameless persistence. And that's how God's going to answer my prayers? And I, and I thought, man, surely that's not. And then I realized exactly what Jesus was doing. Oh, how awesome this is. Jesus gives the example of people. And he says, you know, a person's not going to, the only reason they're going to give you something, they just want you to go away. Yeah, they're your friend. And this is somebody who's close to you, somebody who knows you. But really the reason they're going to give it to you is because they did, you're bothering them and they want you to go away. And what Jesus does is he says, if that's the way people work, think about now when you come to your father who's never asleep, who's never tired, who's never cranky, who's steading with the bounty of heaven at his disposal and who has said, come to me and ask of me and I will give you. If people will only give it to you because you're getting on their nerves and you, you won't go away, how much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you abundantly, exceedingly, above all measure, who sent Christ to die for you, though you were rebellious against Him, though you had wandered away and wanted nothing to do with Him, sent Christ to die for you and brought you into His family? This isn't a friend that you're going to. This is your Father. The one who sent Christ to die that you might be redeemed. And then when you placed faith in him, sealed you with his Holy Spirit, promising that you are his. What Jesus is saying is, you go to God 
And you may not get your answer right away, but He is your Heavenly Father. And He is not just some person who will eventually answer you because you get on their nerves. This is your Heavenly Father who wants the absolute best for you of all times. And so if the answer is slow, you keep asking and you always remember that your Father wants to answer your prayers. It's a powerful thing. So why does Jesus say this? Well, it's interesting then if you go... And look at the verses, and you see now why how it's connected. Because if you look at verse 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. You know, I had heard those, that verse used before, but never in conjunction with this parable. And now I feel like I understand it even greater. Because it's no accident that Jesus uses the word ask and knock in his commands afterwards. Because those same words are used earlier in the parable. And the imagery is right there. He's given the parable. So he gives this parable. He teaches us these things about it. And then what does he command us to do? Ask. Seek. Knock. It's an encouragement when things are rough. It's an encouragement when we see great need around us. And we are powerless to do anything about it. And those we love, we know that ultimately don't know Christ and our heart is broken for it. It is a call by Christ to come to Him in faith, asking for that which only God can give, believing that He's going to do it, and to not give up. Because what will happen? Verse 10, For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, and to the one, and, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What a powerful call by our Savior who calls us to pray. So, in closing, I'd like to ask, would you pray for our campuses? Would you pray that this summer as we get ready for the fall, that God would already start softening the hearts of high school seniors who will be college freshmen, who are at this point right now have no plans whatsoever to continue on following Jesus? Would you pray that God would bring them to himself? Would you pray for international students who are coming here, who only think they're coming to get a degree and live an American lifestyle? Would you pray that God would put people in their path, that they would come to know Jesus? But let me ask you this. Will you pray for your neighborhood? Will you pray for neighbors who live around you that you may not know or that you might know? Would you pray for people who live within a one, two mile radius of this church? Would you pray for the city of Rock Hill with its 70,000 people? And if 75% of them don't know Jesus, that's 59,500 people. Would you go to God and would you reach into heaven and hold on to the promises that God has already given? That he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And would you pray that God would call from the dead those who need to know him and give them new life? There's maybe even a chance this morning, some of you here, somebody's been praying for you, claiming those promises, interceding on your behalf, that you would turn and follow Jesus.
Maybe you know that. Maybe you know because of the way you've been living and you've been snookered into coming to church this morning, your arm's been twisted, or maybe you even came here because you thought, well, I just need to go get my fill of church for the week so I can be good enough and do whatever I can and do whatever I want to for the rest of the week and I'll just come back next Sunday and everything will be good. Could it be even this morning that God is calling you out of darkness into the light, calling you from death to life, to follow Jesus, to stop trusting in yourself and trust in Him and Him alone? I want to pray, and I'll turn it over to Pastor Dave. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this encouragement, Lord, for the times that we pray, and it is difficult. We know that you are a Father who has called us to pray, who has commanded us to pray. And so, Lord, I ask that you would make us steadfast in prayer, that our our eyes would be open to see the need around us, that our compassion would be moved, and that as we understand we have no power to make a difference, that we'd be faithful to share, and then we would hit our knees and ask you to do what only you can do. So, Father, we thank you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this group of believers who love Jesus and desire to see your name exalted and people come to know you. I thank you for their generosity and their support and their encouragement and their faithfulness. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would make them steadfast in their endeavor to follow Jesus. I pray that you would sanctify them and make them more like Christ. And uh, Lord, even as I prayed this morning, I pray that you would make them a city set upon a hill, that in this neighborhood, in this city, um, that it would go forth the gospel from this place and that their reputation would be a people who love Jesus deeply and cared massively about others so father i pray that you would do all of this and i ask if there's anybody here this morning who knows they need to turn their life over to christ i pray that even now they would make that decision we love you and we ask in christ's name amen